welcome to the Tall Poppies podcast. To find out more about our guests or the content of the program, including information about the musical excerpts, visit our website at tall-poppies.com. Hello, it's Brendan O'Shea here, welcoming you to another edition of Tall Poppies, the podcast spotlighting Australian luminaries abroad. It's nice to have you with me. It's been a busy few weeks for the Tall Poppies project. The first Tall Poppies Talk Australian Salon took place in Berlin on March 21st, 2019. The guest of honour was oboist, music educator and composer Kathy Milliken. Salon guests were given a sample of a few of Kathy's latest compositions and there was a lively discussion inspired by her many projects. Check the Tall Poppies archive to catch the podcast featuring Kathy and her music. The salon will be taking place four times a year. If you'd like to attend, please send an email to info at tall-poppies.com. Now, space is limited, so we can't guarantee we can fit everyone in. However, the interest is such that we are planning to have the salon streamed. We'll let you know more about that closer to the time. Just before we meet today's guest, some housekeeping. Thanks to those who sponsor the podcast. Your contributions allow me to continue this project, which includes researching and interviewing my guests, editing, producing, distributing and maintaining the podcast. If you enjoy this program, you might like to consider sponsoring the podcast. To find out more about how best to do this, simply send us an email or visit the Tool Poppies podcast Patreon page. You'll find a link on our homepage, tool-poppies.com. And do keep in mind, Tool Poppies, the podcast, is available on most platforms, including SoundCloud, iTunes and Spotify. Enough of that. Let's meet this episode's guest. Remembering it was mid-80s, so I was a punk. Um, I had bright red tomato Tina Turner hair. So I kind of stuck out in a vague way. And, Can't you know, imagine that. Funny that. And, you know, lo and behold, here we are at the checkpoint. Ah, oh, here we go again. Interrogation. Okay, into this little cubicle. and da, 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 da. Here we go again. That's Heather Betts. The Sydney-born painter has been living in Berlin apart from a few years, since 1984. Heather is a graduate of Sydney's Fine Arts Institute, but she also studied viola at the Sydney Conservatorium of Music. Heather moved to Berlin with her husband, Brisbane-born musician Brett Dean, where the couple studied at Berlin's Hochschule der Künste, known today as the University of the Arts, or UDK. I brought a different set of eyes. <laughs> I think I mean that even in a physical sense because my eyes had grown up in a light that understood and saw colour differently. I brought a tendency to search out a purer pigment and chroma, intensity of pigment, whereas a lot of my, uh, the, the, my colleagues in my class were looking for these very grey in-between, sombre kinds of tones. Today, Heather divides her time between Melbourne and Berlin. She's had over 40 solo exhibitions as well as numerous group exhibitions. The influence of her viola studies is omnipresent as music is a leitmotiv of much of her work. 
Heather's paintings are developed in series, many of which have been inspired by operas or dramatic musical compositions. Indeed, it's obvious that Heather and her composer husband Brett have found much inspiration in each other's works. We have worked actually quite closely together. And although we have done, have collaborated as well on some projects, we often keep it separate to a certain extent. But the inner workings of what we do is actually very closely related. And in saying that, you know, one can see that the words that one uses, the, the expressions and terminology within composing and painting are the same words. One talks of composition, balance, um, layers, texture, colour, line, shading. We're always in the same dimension, really. We're just expressing it in a different modality. So it became a, a kind of part of our life to be the trustworthy person in the other's creative endeavours. Well, when I caught up with Heather, we talked first about those early days in Berlin, a very different city to that of today in a time when the German capital was still divided by the Berlin Wall. We also talked about a special friendship Heather shared with Rosie, a prima ballerina from East Berlin that led eventually to her assisting Rosie and her family to escape the communist regime. Heather Betts, thank you so much for finding some time to talk to me and, and for coming on the podcast. Oh, very thrilled. <laughs> I'm thrilled to talk with you. Absolutely. It's lovely to meet you. And it's, of course, lovely to be sitting here in amongst a, a lot of your wonderful works of art. But we're, of course, in Berlin. And Berlin is no stranger to you that you've actually been here since 1984. A very different time in Germany. And certainly there's no city in Germany where it was any more sort of different than here in Berlin. Absolutely. What are your first memories of 84? Oh, gosh. Oh, they, were, they were intense. And intense, I think, is the word. When we first came here, there were very few Australians, of course, and hardly any English spoken. Now it's very different. There's a lot of English spoken here. But, but in those days, it was bleak, I would say, would describe it well. We arrived midwinter, and it was so cold. I didn't even know that, that, something, <laughs> that, that weather oh. could be that cold and so grey and so dark. And coming from open, sunny, bright Australia, it was just very confronting, actually, for well, how old was I then? Young 20, so 24, I think. It was hard. It was really, really difficult. But uh, Brett and I had each other and uh, we had things to do. And, and certainly one of the main memories of that time was really with the hardship. Why did I stay? Why couldn't I leave? Why, as difficult as it was... And I had an Australian passport, I could just walk out. But something always kept me there, as difficult as it was. And it took me some time, in fact, some years, two or three years, to realise that the answer was that word, intensity. Mm -hmm. It was intense. And it was intensely good and intensely bad. And it was the intensity itself that I was actually craving for. And I needed to grow up a bit in it, I think, to realise that. Let's go back a step or two, though. It seems a bit strange, somebody that's so impressed and so touched by light, to come to somewhere like Berlin in the middle of winter and, and actually find, find it inspirational. What brought you here in the first place, all the way across to the Udikar, the School of the University of the Arts, as it is these days? Well, to wind back just a little bit, I was a musician, but <laughs> I played the viola. Ah. And Brett and I, we met in the Australian Youth Orchestra. 
And I found in playing a lot of contemporary works, but also late romantic works and, and pieces from the Vienna School, the Schoenberg, pieces like that kind of era, it took me into a, a, a European philosophy as a viola player. But uh, it was in playing those works that I found myself understanding that kind of music actually in the format of painting. And so I realised, well, I need to explore this myself. And Brett certainly had plans in coming to Europe. And I thought, well, when I finish my... First of all, I was at the Sydney Conservatorium studying viola. Frustrated with that in not being able to continue with painting and drawing and things that I felt were part of me. So I kept the music going by staying in the Australian Youth Orchestra, but then went off to do a visual arts course at the then Alexander Mackey School of Arts. Uh, it then became the City Art Institute. Now I think it's part of New South Wales Uni, or I'm not quite sure there. But uh, that was fantastic for me. And I then finished that course. That was a Bachelor of, of Arts, Visual Arts. And on completing that, decided, well, with viola under my arm as well, <laughs> and having done a few Australian Youth Orchestra tours in the meantime, I would join Brett overseas and one of his first stops was Berlin and this was particularly interesting to me as well particularly because there was a, an artist that I had always loved even as a teenager and I'd just come across a book of her works as a teenager her name is Kete Kolwitz mm. and there was something in the way that she approached the figure the pathos of how she understood how to draw mothers and children together, some very poignant works, some very difficult, dark works. She was working in the, during the Second World War. I think she died, in fact, on the very last day of the war. It turns out that I found out many years later that we share a birthday. Oh. And I used her drawings to learn how to draw the figure, how to learn foreshortening. And I did this over and over again for many years as a teenager. And knowing that Berlin had been her base and that there was also a museum of Katy Kolwitz's work in Berlin, I thought, well, somehow Berlin was on the map for me and already always had been, although it wasn't for anyone else because in those days it was behind the Iron Curtain and who'd be interested to go there and a long way behind the Iron Curtain. But for me it was kind of, it was obvious that would be a place. And then when Brett was telling me that his plans were to go there as well and to con continue studying viola in Berlin, and by that time we were an item, <laughs> I thought, well, that's, that's kind of, it was on the cards. It had to be. As strange as it may be, it's going to happen. So that, that's what drew me. In first arriving in Berlin as well, that darkness was something that, as I said, was confronting for a young 20-year-old or whatever um, mm. Australian girl. Mm. But there was a truth in it somehow that touched something in how I needed to express myself later also as an artist. Of course, Ketan Kolwitz is a, a very famous and very, very dark, though, artist in many ways. Where on earth did you come across her work when, you know, you're in your teens already in Australia? Yeah, um, I suppose one just has an eye for things that are unusual or that one is attracted to. Uh, in that case, it happened to be a beautiful art book on the coffee table of a very dear friend of mine and still a great friend um, and fabulous Baroque flautist uh, who lives in Amsterdam, <laughs> who I grew up with, Kate Clark. 
And there was, a, there was a book on her mum's coffee table and I found that this was, you know, my go-to for many years back then, yeah. No, it's, it's wonderful work. I can fully understand that. Let's get back to that, to the, the middle of the 80s and arriving here at the Udi Car. You'd, of course, graduated then in Sydney by that stage. Of course, Brett was in, in the music stream and there were you in the visual arts stream. Well, what did you find when you first came here in this particular university? Because being here, as you said, in the middle of the dark Iron Curtain area... I found a freedom. We had spent a few months in England beforehand and I'd investigated the art schools there too. Obviously I had finished in Australia, but I was interested in doing a master's course as well. And um, something about the, the art study in England hadn't attracted me as much. It was at that time uh, very based around um, photorealism. I can draw, I can draw actually pretty accurately if I choose to. But what I was really interested in was trying to draw something that a camera couldn't capture and to find something about the human pathos that a camera can't find, can't deliver. And, uh, and that would move into the slightly abstract figurative, but something else. And I didn't know what that was. But when I came to Berlin, something in that direction is what I saw. And it was in some of the, the, the art of the, the professors that were at the Udeka, who I investigated when I first came to Berlin, to just work out, do I want to be here? Do I want to do masters here? Is that an option for me? I actually went to the library and looked at all of the art that was available there of all the professors who were teaching there. And, uh, and in fact, was very taken with the art. Well, a lot of them. And, but particularly an artist called Marvan, who I then approached and showed, I showed him some of my portfolio that I'd brought with me, some work I'd been doing in Berlin in my first weeks and months there. And um, we got on very well. And in that process, I put together an application and portfolio to do uh, masters and was accepted into his class. Hmm. What did you bring with you from Australia, do you think, coming into this completely different world here in, in Berlin? I brought a different set of eyes. <laughs> mm. I think I mean that even in a physical sense because my eyes had grown up in a light mm. that understood and saw colour differently to a lot of the students who I found in my class. I brought a, a kind of a tendency to search out a purer pigment and chroma, intensity of pigment, whereas a lot of my, uh, the, the, my colleagues in my class were looking for these very grey in-between sombre kinds of tones. And so I, I found myself in a very odd situation there. But in fact, I think in a way we learn from each other. Now I call those sombre tones and those middle tones, I call them viola tones. <laughs> They're like... <laughs> You know, they're, they're, well, they are. It's, I thought, well, actually, there's something in my past viola playing that I need to actually bring into my work as well. But I think when I was young and first in, in Berlin, I was so desperate, actually, for a pure colour that only the Australian light had taught my eyes mm. and to drink that in every time I saw it that I found myself just naturally trying to recreate that on canvas all the time. Yeah. Now I'm, I'm used to the different light, also the European light, and I love it. But at that time, it was, it was not easy. 
uh, it's also changed, hasn't it? It has. It really has. Mm. I know the first few years that we were in Berlin, the winters, three years in a row, were mainly around minus 20, minus 25 degrees. Mm. Um, That's what I mean by confronting when I first (laughs) arrived here. (laughs) That was a pretty hard thing to get used to. Um, and and certainly that that isn't really the case anymore. Mm. There's this other aspect, of course, when you start tertiary education in Germany. There's coming from Australia, of course, and and the relaxed friendliness. Slightly different, isn't it? Is that there's a lot more formalities, isn't there? There are, but not forgetting, mm. I was among artists, mm. and artists, and particularly, okay, mid '80s, and in Berlin, mm. they were. <laughs> Formality was a thing that they were quite deliberately trying to work against. So there was an openness there, I, I think, probably, where you wouldn't have found that in other faculties. And that was fun. That mm. was nice. What were the things that you noticed started to happen to your work as you spent those long, cold winters here in Berlin and were studying? Are you able to sort of trace the influences? Oh, I think so, yeah. I, I know as a very deliberate action when I first arrived... I had to unpack and dismantle my own ability to draw accurately. I had always done that. I liked doing it because I could do it. And I found the uh, tendency to just do it automatically was actually getting in the way of seeing deeper than what that was and trying to put a face or a shape on something that's more of a, a sensation or a feeling or an emotion that someone's having as opposed to the shape of their nose or the shape of their jawline or whatever. So I had to make a, a real commitment to taking apart the the realistic habit that my eyes had. In saying that, it never left. I still needed it because even in a, a a kind of subliminal way, I always have to know when I'm looking at a figure that I've done that it's anatomically logical. But I needed to get rid of a lot of the mapping, I suppose, of where anatomy sits um, because I found that that often just got in the way of of a true energy of what it was that I was wanting to put across in colour. Yeah. That's a weird thing, I know. No, well, I'm just trying to imagine, is, is that sort of a process every time you go to, to start a new work that you actually have to do away with a lot oh, in order to always. find your way in? Yes. yes. I think it was uh, the composer Michael Tippett that says, have the courage to murder your darlings. <laughs> <laughs> you know, oh, but I got that shoulder just right and now I'm going to just smash it. Um, yeah, that was the exercise I did then. I, in fact, started by photocopying my own face. I felt I couldn't do this, this, this action on someone, someone else. They would never speak to me again. So I used my own face and I would lime it onto canvas and then attack it mm. and attack it in a way that tiny bits would stay there but the rest was lost. And then how lost? And I even took myself back in colour as well rather than throwing all these colours at the... At the canvas, I would just try and understand uh, white and black on a kind of ochre surface and then add maybe a, a dark vermilion to that, a dark red, and see what tones could mix mm. on, again, this ochre surface as, as a backdrop rather than on white and using white as a colour. And then to that, I would add a tiny bit of turquoise and understand how that worked. And 
in this huge process that in the end took over a year and a half, two years of really keeping, it was like, it was like just not taking my nose out of a book of viola studies for, for two years. You know, it was really understanding the workings of how does one understand, how does one see colour, how does one feel the temperature of colour and how does colour work together. So, you know, I put that all together and in that process also worked out how to do that in the context of a figure, but how much of that figure to let go of, yeah. Do you think that uh, a lot of this experimentation had a lot to do with the fact that you were supported in Germany in, in this way, in this experimental way that perhaps might have happened back home? I think at that time it was probably the most important part of it was that, was to go away to do this. It's hard to say, had I stayed in Australia, if I would have developed in the same way. I, I very much doubt it. You know, one, of course, becomes the, the, the compilation of the influences that one has around one. There was an approach that was, had a lot of muscle and gesture, but abandon in Berlin at the time. Berlin kind of stands for that, doesn't it, in mm. many, many ways, has done in all of history. I don't know how the approach to to the art schools and the art scene and the art teaching is now in Australia. I really don't know at all. But I do know that when I was doing my undergraduate in Australia, because I could draw, there was an expectation that that's how I would build my career. And from a lot of people, professors and exhibitions, gallerists, and I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to do that. And so for me, personally, it really was a matter of physically move, removing myself. And I couldn't have gone much further than the other side of the planet as it was then and behind the Iron Curtain um, to do that. So, yeah, I did feel that, that I had won myself some freedom to um, really just explore and, and fall mm. if I needed to fall, make terrible mistakes if I needed to make terrible mistakes, but to to discover something that uh, that I just needed to do, yeah. Yeah, it tends to be a little bit easier to do all of those things away from home to a certain extent. Oh, yes, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. But let's look at where you were living again. We're back in Berlin, of course, okay. and, and this bleak time in Berlin. And, and you've mentioned it a few times, of course, the war was up. This is before I was here, so I never actually experienced this. So I'm, I'm very intrigued to hear about that life. This contact that you started to have with the other side of the wall, mm. with East Germany, and in particular, a dancer at the Kormische Oper. Fascinating story, which I'm going to ask you to tell me about. Her name was Rosie, right? That's right. Rosie Starker was her name and is still her name. <laughs> she now lives in Australia and she's a fantastic friend and was a fantastic prima ballerina of, at that time in the, in the comic opera in, in East Germany. Yeah. So tell us, tell us, how did you come to meet Rosie and, and how much contact in general did you have with the other side of the wall? In those days, actually quite a lot. And it was because of Rosie and because of the arts uh, that we came to meet Rosie to start with. We met Rosie through a mutual friend who was an Australian and studying viola also in Berlin at the time, uh, who 
had known about Rosie. Now, Rosie, as a prima ballerina, had previously actually been on tour in Australia <laughs> with the Comische Oper, the comic opera. As an East German, she was only allowed to tour because she had a daughter who was probably five or six at the time that she was doing the tour. And the Stasi, of course, the secret police in East Germany, kept a, a good eye on the daughter while Rosie was away in Australia to make sure that Rosie didn't jump ship and defect while, while in the West. So, you know, that was one of their tactics, of course, in, in those days. I can say it openly now. Whee! Um, <laughs> Good feeling. <laughs> <laughs> well, even these many years later, it brings up, you know, oh, can I talk about this? Yes. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh. Through a mutual friend, we heard about Rosie and heard that because of this trip that Rosie had made to Australia, she was very anxious to keep a contact to Australians at all, which, of course, was well nigh impossible at that time. But we'd just come to Berlin and we were also curious young Australians wanting to know, well, what is over there? Is it, you know, are they real gardens and what happens and can you get through the wall? And, whoa, you know, we were already really confronted by seeing the wall, the physical wall at all. And Brett and I had even started a bit of a, a, a um, project of riding our bikes around the western part side of the wall and seeing how far we could get, you know, and if we could do the whole thing, which we didn't, but... Oh, there were some bizarre scenes. And, of course, most of Berlin was, even West Berlin, was still pockholed with bullet holes, and some of it still is. Mm. So this was all incredibly confronting. But, um, but all the more curious we were then to see, well, what's on the other side? You know, so this was an opportunity to go over with these mutual friends, with that security of going through the checkpoint and going then to visit this ballerina her husband and her little girl and to make that contact and uh, so we did that one day and as soon as we met this this Rosie she and I just hit it off we barely had much language I didn't really speak German she didn't speak any English really if anything she had smattering of Russian but it's just the personality and we just became great friends and already and then and then of course as this mutual friend then went back to Australia um, we said, well, of course, we'll, we'll continue this going across the wall. We had Western passports, so we could go over any time we wanted. We just had to, of course, exchange 25 West marks for 25 East marks, although I think at the time the rate was one to five. or one to, <laughs> But, you know, hey, they had to earn money to, to just visit Rosie, to take some fresh fruit and vegetables over for, for their daughter, Antje. Um, and for them, of course, there was very little in the way of fresh fruit and vegetables that could be found in East Germany at all at the time, although it was just a few metres, really, from, from the wall that they, that they live, maybe half a kilometre or whatever, and, and we the same on the other side. So, you know, it would have been a matter of maybe 15-minute walk to their house from ours had the wall not been there. But sometimes the trips across the wall would take us up to two and a half, three hours, we would regularly be interrogated at the checkpoint. Remembering it was mid-80s, so I was a punk. <laughs> um, I had 
bright red tomato, Tina Turner hair. Um, and so I kind of stuck out in a vague way. Um, and Can't you know, imagine that. Funny that. <laughs> and, you know, lo and behold, here we are at the checkpoint. Ah, oh, here we go again. Interrogation. Okay, into this little cubicle. And da, 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 da. here we go again. So, you know, I got very used to it and... Um, what the whole process was. I started to have fun with it. I wasn't intimidated after a while. I had a bit of German. And within a short time, I just said to Rosie, I'm going to get you out of here. Mm. And I really never doubted myself. I just thought, I'll do it somehow. And I also thought, it's not a matter of can you get out or not. It's a matter of how. And so I knew it was possible. You just had Mm. to work out how. Tell us about that friendship, though, over the years, getting to know somebody and the sort of training and the sort of background that these East Germans have is quite impressive, isn't it? Particularly someone who's become the prima ballerina in an opera house. Well, yeah. I mean, they have an incredible work ethic. They don't complain. They're not precious. Their approach of just getting down and doing it, you know, hard work is, is just normal Mm. and they live in a situation that is is quite used to deprivation I think and so making a fuss about stuff just doesn't exist there Mm. you just get on with it this was interesting for us and also fascinating at that time we would regularly meet Brett and I would go over and regularly meet with Rosie her family her husband was a a lighting technician at at a theatre so we met a lot of theatre people Uh, They knew writers, they knew all sorts of people in the East German arts scene who never, it was just understood and we learnt a lot about this, they would never get together in pubs or clubs or restaurants as maybe we did in the West. That's just far too dangerous. Um, They would only meet in, in, in people's private homes. And so, you know, we found ourselves in the company of some extraordinary people and extraordinary talent, and we still know them. Mm. And, you know, we often thought, is this all being bugged? Turns out it was. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that one of them, and I think I know who, but I'm not really sure, Mm. was in fact an informant. But the thing is, in those days, and they found out later, I think one in four or one in six East Germans was, in fact, a Stasi informant. So, you know, yeah. I think a lot of us got to know a lot more about that through the film The Lives of Others there a few oh years ago. God. Yes, yes. Oh, <laughs> my yes. God, that film. Well, yeah. actually, we'd moved back to Australia for a short while. We were there a few years in the middle of our long yeah. time here in Berlin um, when that film came out. And I'd heard about it, of course, from many people on saying, oh, my God, you've got to see this film, blah, 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 blah. And I thought, yeah, yeah, that was, that was in my past life. You know, I've put that all behind me. It was traumatic. It was exciting. But I'm doing other things now. I don't want to see it. And then I remember in Melbourne, the whole family were out, and I thought, oh, you know, I've got that film there. I think I'll see it. You know, just let's see it. Just um, in comparison to my own memory of the time and blah, blah, blah. Oh, my God, I saw this film and there were scenes of the jail in Hohenschönhausen, which is, had I been caught, that's where I would have gone. And I was so blissfully young and naive 
And I think just in a wonderful state of deliberate denial Mm. that I just didn't entertain those thoughts at that time. But in hindsight and with a bit of maturity behind me, I realised how incredibly risky it was to do what I did. Mm. And then all those years later, and then as a mother as well, you know, with people who depended on you, then to see what where I would have gone and I began it was years later but I began to shake Mm. and when the film finished I was just shaking I was completely with it but I was shaking I was physically shaking it's sort of like this really strange post-traumatic years later physical effect Mm. and I just found myself grabbing for the whiskey and (laughs) going and sitting with a neighbor for a while (laughs) It was a really strange... I really wasn't expecting that. I thought, oh, this is all, you know, that's fine. But, my God, it was a weird situation for me. Uh, It was very close to our lives. It was very close. Tell me some of the surprises or some of the things that surprised you in your friendship with Rosie and what you discovered that perhaps you didn't think would be the case for somebody living, you know, in an Iron Curtain country. I think she, as a person, is just extraordinarily surprising. She had this, the the most surprising thing I think that I'm still just astounded by is that she has the most extraordinary optimism and cheerfulness that I just found in the face of what she endured there, uh, superhuman. I could not believe it. In the process of helping them to escape, which in fact took five years, Mm. In that time, I had to smuggle a lot of things across the border. We had to get carriers to drop incredibly sensitive letters and things to consulates in Warsaw because it couldn't be done in the West and that had to be done in code. And, um, you know, there were just um, very, very strange kinds of activities that we got up to to make this work. She also had an official application to leave the East in place uh, because she's actually just very loyal, trustworthy and a decent person. She just thought, you know, I can do it this way too. But they tortured her with that, not physically but Mm. mentally. Every time she would go and, and check on how it was going, they would open the bottom drawer, take out a letter, say, oh, is this it? And then just watching her let it drop back in the bottom drawer and slam it shut. You know, just these kinds of humiliations that was very much part of the strategy there. Um, this went on and on, and it sickened me. I was free. I always had my Australian passport, so long as I didn't get caught. Um, but I couldn't believe this kind of behaviour. I just, it just didn't, <laughs> I don't know, it just wasn't something that I thought was possible in grown adults. (laughs) It was just a very strange thing for people to be just kind of played with like a cat and a mouse. It was really like that. So I thought, I mean, it just gave me a lot more courage. I just kept saying, it's not a matter of can we get you out? I can. Mm. It's just a matter of how. We have to find a way and we have to find a way that's safe because there's a child who in the meantime, by the time we actually did manage to do it, she was 14, mm. and her husband, and all three of you are going to get out of here safely and I'm going to work out how to do it. So, yeah, there were lots of lots of um, twists and turns, but it did work in the end. Yeah. It did work in the end, and that was, of course, in 89. 
And it took it took you a while to get there, but you made it. You have to tell us how were those final days and what was the the final thing that happened? How how did you manage to get them across that border? Well, we had to choose which border. I knew that the Berlin border was just ridiculous. There were just too many crosses already there that we used to go and look at and people on hunger strikes. And yeah, crosses, of course, for people that had been shot yes. when, when they tried to escape. Yes, of mm. course. Mm. And the last one was murdered just a few months, I think, before the wall came, came down, even weeks, I think, trying to, trying to make that crossing. Um, we decided that wasn't the border to try. We decided probably one of the other borders and uh, the best one seemed to be the Hungarian one to Austria at the time because Hungary was the nation that was pushing the most to have Western um, diplomatic openness in some way. And also at that time there had been quite a good visit, I think, from an Australian diplomat to Hungary. And so... Even just the Australian-Hungarian relations were slightly more open. Still, it was an Iron Curtain, and the Iron Curtain was there too, but I thought maybe this was something we could work with. In the meantime, Rosie had had always been on holiday in Hungary, um, and she'd always gone on holiday by train. And already in 89, no one had the slightest inkling that anything could happen. It took till the end of the year. But she thought, look, why don't we apply then again to go on holiday? They, of course, have to be okayed even to go on holiday (laughs) as an East German and also because she had an application to leave and because she was a very coveted prima ballerina that they didn't want to lose, on it went. She was really under lock and key. They were watching her all the time. But she wanted to go on holiday and she thought, well, let's use this opportunity and apply to go on holiday and say we're going by train as normal. And then when the holiday time came, I thought this might be our chance to go, to make our move. And when she actually went to Hungary, at the last minute, she decided to buy air tickets. And she assumed she would then be caught for, for not sticking with her original application of going by train. In fact, the, the system there was starting to crumble. And this was our first inkling of it. She just bought air tickets and that was okay. And no one said anything. And I thought, oh my goodness, how was that allowed if they're going to catch her at the airport? In the meantime, Brett was on tour with the, the orchestra, the Berlin Philharmonic, who he played with at the time, and he was stationed at Salzburg for the Salzburg Festival. And I went with him, as I did every year. And this was at exactly the same time. And I thought, okay, things are lining up. Let's see if we can do it. If she is able to actually get to Budapest and they don't get her at the airport... I'm going to call a friend of mine, an Australian and a filmmaker, uh, who had been to Berlin years before and had was also interested in this case and had come over to, to meet them and had actually said to me at that time, you know, if you ever manage this, I want to film it. And I thought, hmm, is that going to be a help or a hindrance? I don't know. But... You never know. You've got to try something. And besides, I didn't have a uh, an international driver's license, so and we might need a car. I might need this guy. <laughs> and maybe I don't want to do it completely alone because Brett actually has to go on and keep playing concerts. He's not going to be with me. I'm doing this on my own. So You're sounding more and more like Miss Marvel. Yeah. <laughs> it really was like that. But you know, so I thought. Well, look, if they 
are able to get through to Budapest, then we had a system set up by which she would call the the guest house we're staying at, staying at in Salzburg if she could. If she couldn't, she would call her sister who would get us a message from East Germany somehow. But we had all of this set up. So on the day that she was going to fly, otherwise I knew if she didn't get to Budapest, she was in jail. The whole family would be gone. But I was waiting and the guest house were all waiting. Everyone knew about this. And... Uh, just waiting for the phone and the phone the phone rang and the woman at the guest house answered it and after a second hung up and then she looked at me white and she said the voice had said bin rosy i am rosy bin in buddha i am in buddha then it went dead i knew she'd done it she was in budapest she'd made it oh my god now the wheels were in motion. I knew we had to start doing things. It really was just that. Oh, it was very exciting. So I just immediately rang this friend in Australia, Brian Morris, filmmaker, and I said, okay, we're on. Get to Vienna. I'll pick you up there in 24 hours, which he did. So then we hired a car. He drove it. And we, as Australians, could just drive straight to Budapest, which was just across the border. But we didn't know where they were. We had to find the family somehow in Budapest. That took a bit of asking around in a coded way, but we were able to do so. East Germans, actually, the city was filling up with East Germans. There were a lot of people looking for an opportunity to come to Hungary on holiday and had heard that some people were just walking across what they called the green boundary, walking across the fields into Austria, and it was working. Other ones weren't getting across. Some weren't getting across at all and were now dead. Some were just being caught by the Stasi and sent back to East Germany. It was potluck, but some of them thought it was worth a try. And so there were a couple of big camps set set up there for some of these people. And I thought maybe that's a place to start looking. We went through a few and even in doing so, I had a camera with me. I didn't know how much to use it or not, but, you know, we... We kind of risked filming a little bit dangerously, but we did it. And I just thought, well, maybe this is a good idea because uh, Brian had actually worked out with Channel 9 before he left Australia. If we are able to get some footage and if they use that for 60 minutes, then Channel 9 will pay for their airfares and get them out. And I thought, okay, so long as it's not going to risk the operation altogether, we'll give it a go. So, um, So we did that. And, um, and we were able to find them. And then, of course, so we were all together in Budapest. What do we do now? It took quite a while then to work out how to get them across the border. We tried various approaches, all extremely dangerous. Some kids were being stolen in the camps. And then, of course, from the, by the Stasi, who were also there, and the parents being told, if you don't come with us now, you'll never see your child again, blah, 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 all that. So we had a lot of things to contend with. But uh, in the end, it took a koala T-shirt that Auntie was wearing that I'd given her years before. It took the vivacious nature, I think, of two young women, Rosie and myself. Uh, It took the hoped-for good relations, Hungary-Australia. And we were able to make good friends with a, a member of police who had connections and we were able to get a message to a, um, a border guard 
at a very particular border crossing at a place called Hegya Shalom, which is right on the border mm. from Hungary to Austria, on the way to Vienna, and then risk it. That was the only risk. We went in two cars. I filmed from one, they were in the other, to go across and hope that we were at the right place at the right time, that their passports would be overlooked, let's say, and that we would meet on the other side of the border within Austria and safely in the West. (sighs) That's what we did. And? And it worked. And we got to the other side and I had said to Brian, if we make this, you can film all you like, but you're not to come within a two-metre radius of us. Don't talk to us. Don't interview us. Just film and let us be. This has been five years doing this. If it doesn't work, then we'll work out what to do next. As they were going through, um, the border guard took their passports and went away. I was filming this and then another border guard looked at me. And I quickly just dropped the camera and filmed my foot for a while. <laughs> but then the, then the guy looked away again and the camera came up over the dashboard and I was filming the car as it went through. And then, of course, we just waved our Australian passports and we, through we went. Now that footage, just a few metres on the other side, is still for me some of the most emotional footage that I'll ever see. Every time I see it, it's just, well, it's very, very emotional. And um, then we just had a plan we go and stay with another Australian who was all in on this, a violinist living in Vienna, Joanna Lewis. And uh, so we went to stay at her place just overnight and get our acts together, regroup, get a flight to West Berlin because one could still fly through three ways that you're allowed to fly into into Berlin safely. They weren't in any danger of being caught by the Stasi, neither was I. And to see West Berlin from that side, and um, which we did. Bizarrely, Rosie said, I want to go and see my old ballet school, which uh, the wall had gone up when she was seven. But she remembered her ballet school and she dearly loved her ballet teacher. And she remembered the address, of course, everything. She had never seen her. She never saw her father again, by the way, who was at work in West Berlin and never got home. That was it. In fact, when he was dying... She went to the Stasi and said, could she apply just to visit, just to see her father before he died? No. When he died, she went to apply to say, could she go over for the funeral? What's the point? He's dead. You know, I mean, really. So we went to the, to the ballet school. Lo and behold, it was still a ballet school. We walked in the door. The teacher was still there. She was something like 89, wow. still teaching. She turned around. She saw Rosie. Many years later, <laughs> how many years was the wall up? Oh, 25 years. And she just said, ah, Rosie. Can you believe it? She recognised her. Incredible. Yeah, and that was incredible. That was just, oh, they were just bizarre times. So we were in West Berlin then for a couple of days while we were organising flights to Australia mm. and put them on the flight and off they went. And then, of course, 60 Minutes met them all in at Sydney Airport. And in those harrowing days in Budapest while we were working out what to do and to just fill time because it was pretty distressing, I taught them English 
And I taught them all waltzing Matilda, just to sing, because it's just an uplifting thing to do. And so, of course, the minute they got off the plane and were just, you know, hit by interviewers, Rosie was a bit braver, I think, than the others to, uh, than her husband, uh, Uva, and her daughter, Antje, to be interviewed. She's just like that. But with her broken English, she was happy to do it. But at the beginning, they were just overwhelmed and jet-lagged and everything. And so Rosie just started singing Waltzing Matilda and the whole airport just burst into Waltzing Matilda. It was really amazing. So that was some good footage. Anyway, it all went to 60 Minutes about four days later. Mm. Yeah. Uh, there you go. <laughs> there you go. What a story. Waltzing Matilda, Waltzing Matilda, you come Waltzing Matilda with me. And he said as he shot that jump back in his tucker Of course, let's, let's come back to you, though, because you remained here in Berlin and this ever-changing, this very different Berlin, which started to, of course, you know, all of a sudden in late 89, the wall came down and you were there in the middle of it. You'd experienced one aspect of Berlin. This was the new aspect of Berlin. That's true. That's very true. When this escape happened, that was in the summer. The wall didn't come down until the end of that year. And right. even in the summer, no one had any idea that it would ever come down. And I knew the situation pretty well. And I remember even about three weeks before the wall came down, talking to my father in Australia and saying, um, he was asking about the situation. And um, he'd been looking after Rosie, of course, they first and family. They went to stay with my parents to start with. And, and I said, you know, I really can't see the wall coming down in my lifetime. I had said that. I had believed that. That's how secure it really was, despite the the, the, the cracks in the wall, literally. Um, so, um, but then uh, I was actually also in danger in that time. 60 Minutes had gone to air. Stasi knew about it. I was actually trapped. I could fly out of Berlin, but there's no way I could ever go across the wall again. I could never go through a checkpoint. I could never drive out of Berlin. So long as the wall stayed up, I was limited in that way. And I was always slightly in danger about that. Do you think about that before you, you actually agreed to this, to getting Rosie out? Did you ever think about what the consequences might have been? No. I don't know why. Mm. I just, maybe I was too young. Yeah. Maybe it was my attitude at the time. This is kind of a game, and I wanted that as my safety net. I thought maybe, um, in a way, if I ever start to entertain those thoughts, I won't be as convinced as I was. I was 100% convinced. I knew it was possible. It's just a matter of, it's like working, it's like I'm doing a knot. Mm. You just need time, and you have to work out how to do it. And then you do it. Right? remember thinking okay who thought up the wall yeah to start with you know and all of our german friends just thought i was completely bonkers and i thought well therefore it takes a completely naive girl from australia to see the truth in this it's i, I think there is a lot in this i think i think as australians we 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 had this wonderful luxury of growing up in space and freedom didn't we of course. It's not, yeah. it, we really just can't conceive that that's no. not the case. Exactly. Yeah. And so, and I kept that and yeah. I needed to keep that. Yeah. And, um, and so 
you know, it was just, yeah, I suppose it's just a matter of, well, put the pieces in place. There, there must be a way, you just have to find it. And if the minute you start to entertain thoughts of doubt or risk, or of course there were risks, but it was still a game, then there's a hole in it and you can't do it anymore. Yeah, and so I think only a person like, you know, that, that wasn't, hadn't grown up in it, saw it for what it was. And as I was saying, you know, it's only a person who thought that up in the first place. Well, a person anatomically no bigger necessarily than me, you know, with a brain size, mm. not necessarily any different to mine, why shouldn't mine be able to think up an alternative? Mm. There must be one. So that's kind of the way I <laughs> approached it. Very strange. But anyways, for those months, it was a bit strange, I must say. And But I thought, oh, I can live with that. Let's just see how it goes. And then... You know, of course, when the wall then came down, a lot of friends came and said, my God, you did all that. And, you know, they could have just walked out. But I said, no, no. I was one of many, many thousands of people that meant they could walk, that those who are walking out now can walk out. Mm-hmm. We, were, we all pushed on the wall. If all of us had thought like that, you know, let's not do anything and they'll all walk out, it wouldn't have fallen. Mm-hmm. So... It, were, it, it was the, the compounded pressure of all these little actions, of which mine was one very small one, that, that actually made that little mark in history. So it was an interesting time. Rosie, Uva and Antje, they're all in Australia now? Antje and Rosie, yes. Uva was, when the wall did come down, he found it very difficult to adjust to Australia. He decided after some years actually to return to Germany and Rosie would go back and forward and he was quite ill though at the time. I don't know if the stress at the time may have contributed to it but he he died actually relatively young for for his age. Antje and Rosie are there. Antje is now a mother herself, has two gorgeous girls and yeah and Rosie still teaches as an older dancer of course but she teaches a lot also in Japan and and uh Yeah, she's a very important person. Nice story. Heather... Of course, back to the 90s and back to you and you, the artist, something as major as what you experienced there in 89. What sort of effects could you see that having on your work when you went back to paint? Oh, wow. Well, it it just gave me a courage, I think, about statement, about life and death, about just reaching out and doing it no matter what risk taking and also it taught me a lot about I don't know can you say a higher truth (laughs) I felt connected to that I really did I sort of felt that one can create a bond with something that understands a larger humanity and and act on that and it's something about that that I like to try and find when I paint, whether it's a very intimate kind of relationship, 
between a mother and a daughter, like or a mother and a child, as um, Katie Colvitz did, or as Rosie has with her daughter and I have with my daughters and um, whatever that might be or with a partner or... But then also the larger dimension of what what are mothers or partners or people or, or whole nationalities or what is the universal kind of truth? And so in, in losing specific identity of of people say in portraits I want to find something more of this universal thing that's there you know what is it that we universally recognize because we're human beings that I can sense in this painting without having to see oh this is you know name someone so and so and don't they look sad or don't they look happy or whatever not that so, yeah, it sort of took me into that space. Is that, that's kind of getting a bit out there. Right? No, no, it isn't. Let's, let's, it's not at all. Let's look at the connection, though. Of course, you, your husband's a composer and, and, you know, the couple of times I've encountered Brett and we've talked, he's always talked about my wife and I in the sense that how important it has been for him also this visual aspect of the arts and the influence that you've had on him and his work. What's that been for you with him composing more? In, in the 90s and, and building this career. What sort of a, an influence did that have on you then as well? Well, we have influenced each other our whole lives, I would say. We've been together since we were very young. He, of course, starting off as um, a player, um, musician, could see how I was formulating myself as a painter. And I'm not just reproducing someone else's painting when I paint I have to start from a blank canvas and I think in a way in playing music that's already been written he was a bit jealous of my work and he would come and watch me work and so this is what started him off composing I think you know he even dabbled in making some sculptures with me and just Mm. seeing what he could think up himself to just kind of break that boundary but um, but in the end, it was when he was playing a lot of new music, sometimes world premieres of new pieces of German composers uh, in the 90s with various ensembles from within the Berlin Philharmonic, that he would come home and say, oh, I love this piece, but, you know, the horn part should have just been three bars longer or, oh, this, this part's working so well, but, you know, I wish he'd just extended this or cut this bit back or... Blah, 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 blah. And I remember saying, well... You, you just want to write the music yourself. Why don't you just damn well do it? Just start, you know. And so it took a bit of, you know, a boot in the pants for me and a few other friends of ours as well and his work that he did with Simon Hunt as well, who's a, a more of a rock musician and he probably talked about that himself. A lot of these encouragements to actually start composing. So, But then as soon as he did, we have worked actually quite closely together and although we have done have collaborated as well on some projects we often keep it separate to a certain extent but the inner workings of what we do is actually very closely related and in saying that you know one can see that the words that one uses the the expressions and terminology within composing and painting are the same words one talks of composition balance um, layers texture colour, line, shading, we're always in the same dimension, really. We're just expressing it in a different modality. So um, it became a, a kind of part of our life to, to 
be the trustworthy person in the other's creative endeavours. And that is still the case. In fact, up until recently, we've been sharing a studio even. <laughs> I have the dirty room, he has the cleaner room. Although. <laughs> decided to take your girls back to Australia to have them educated and leave Berlin for a period of time. Why, why was that? What's the calling of the Great Island in that respect? I think a homesickness that had never left us. We needed to regroup in a way. Brett had got to a point in having played with the Berlin Philharmonic at that point, for he'd been with them 14 years, I think, that he wanted to explore his composition quite deliberately and a lot more extensively. I wanted to support him in that, even if it meant a bit of risk and hardship. But hey, I was a risk taker and I still was then, even with children. And I still am now. And see where it would go. I just thought the worst thing one could ever do would be to get stale. And I was also at a point I'd had a few pretty major solo exhibitions and I was a bit tired, actually. I, I needed to also gather my forces and find out where I was in my own work. And all of these things just came to a head, I think. And also our kids were around, what were they, seven and nine, about that age. And I thought if I, we lay, wait too much longer, if we're going to go back at all, then now is probably the best time. If we wait till middle of puberty or whatever, it'll be harder for them. There was always the... the the fear that they wouldn't feel, having been born in Berlin, that they would lose their sense of home in Berlin and not develop a sense of home in Australia, although they had visited it many times as, you know, little kids. Um, what if that happened? And in fact, as it turned out, I think one could say now, they're both grown adults, one's even married, that in fact they feel at home anywhere. They felt a sense of home in both so one couldn't have foreseen that at the time, but, uh, but that, I think, turned out really well. It was still not easy, I must say. It wasn't easy. But, um, but we, we had a, a lovely time there. We really did, yeah. How happy are you with how Australia is developing in the last years? You know, living away, we often get a lot of the negative uh, headlines of what's happening there, particularly in the various refugee crises and various other rather unpleasant aspects of what's happening there at the moment. Environmentally, I know that you and Brett were very concerned about what's happening in Australia and reacted accordingly. Yeah. Well, what, what do you feel? What, how do you feel that, I mean, particularly with this background of, of Germany and all the things that you've experienced here, do you, do you get a bit sad about it or are you quite happy about it? It's <laughs> a very interesting question. It really is. I think, yeah, there is sadness. But there's sadness also for here in Berlin. There's sadness for everywhere, I think. I, I do feel a kind of general sadness in those regards that you just said at all. For creative thought, creative endeavour, 
um, for freedoms and liberties and, and, you know, all the big ones. Um, and also for just the, the health of the planet. <laughs> you know, hey, yeah, I do feel that, not just in terms of the Australian nature. Certainly when we were living in Queensland for a few years, we were very concerned with what we saw happening right around us with this sort of crazed insistence on building on every piece of open land that was considered to be empty. It's not empty. It has such important fauna and flora that is native to just those those square meters that's not empty you can't just do it and then covering all the uh, the you know the corridors for koalas for example around noosa um and those in south southeast queensland um you know with these wall-to-wall miami style concrete monstrosities you know with the token palm tree out the front and oh it was scary. I mean, there were occasions where I would be standing in the middle of the main road in a dressing gown, ordering traffic around a koala that is trying to cross the street. You know, I've done this. So this was really distressing at that time. That was some years ago when we were living in Australia in Queensland then. We all go home to Australia regularly and we all work there as well in with various projects. Our older daughter too who's a mezzo-soprano, she does quite a bit of touring in Australia too and we adore to go back. But in the respect of what you said, I would say my main concern when I do go back always comes to me after some weeks of being home. I'm, it's always such a delight to be home. Delight. First of all, it's a delight for my eyes, as I said at the beginning, to see colour and see light that way. That, I think, is just where I start. Well, that's me. Um, so that's really nice to just kind of embrace that again. But then after some weeks, what really distresses me, if I may say, um, is just a general dumbing down. That's what distresses me. And the dumbing down reaches out into all of those other dimensions that we were talking about. The acceptance that that not having to think or not having to try or not having to be a steward of the planet we're on or not having to be responsible or not even having to speak well on TV or on the radio mm. or be able to spell or or that all of these that television television is okay to just have these I mean we don't even have a television in Germany but what is the you know these uh, real-time programs that you don't even have to have a script writer anymore you don't even really really you know it's kind of like find the lowest common denominator and pitch just below that now, that, I get despondent. Yeah, that's, that for me is the hardest bit. And obviously, it's happening world, world round. And maybe it's just because when I'm in Australia, I actually have access to a TV and that kind of thing I see, whereas here I don't have one. And so I'm kind of protected from it. But it is everywhere. Of course, it's everywhere. Um, but that makes me sad. That, yeah, that, that's really hard to kind of cope with. Yeah. When do you feel Australian? When you're away from Australia and you notice, oh, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm feeling very Australian at the moment. 
obviously when I hear someone speaking Australian, when there's a nice Aussie accent somewhere there on the train, oh, that's nice. When do I feel Australian? Oh, a lot of the time, actually. You know, when I feel that I don't have to adhere to um, a cultural attitude that is not mine, that isn't maybe relaxed enough for me, that isn't, that is maybe inhibited in a situation where I wouldn't be. And then I'm really grateful for, um, for my approach that I know is an Aussie approach, if one can say that. I mean, obviously, there are open, uninhibited people all around the planet. But, but there's, I don't think it's wrong to say that there is an Aussie quality that, um, that I am proud of. What a wonderful place to to finish our little chat here. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and for sharing those stories. Oh, it's been an absolute delight. Thank you. Thank you. Artist Heather Betts talking to me there. If you'd like to find out more about Heather's work, then do visit the Tool Poppies website, tool-poppies.com, or send us an email to info at tool-poppies.com. Tall Poppies, the podcast, was produced in Berlin by me, Brandon O'Shea. Thanks to my co-producer, Nishad Pandey, who helped put together this program. It was nice to have you with us. I'm Brendan O'Shea, and I'm looking forward to welcoming you to our next edition of the podcast very soon. Goodbye.